You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Reading from uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 to 14. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Then when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week... Uh we saw the work begin on the walls of Jerusalem. After much preparation, Nehemiah comes to uh, Jerusalem and begins the task that God has given him and he inspires the people to rise up and build. It's a stirring passage and it's really clear that God is in it, in every part of it, and yet in amongst it all, we start to see the first signs of opposition. In chapter 2, verse 10, we're told that uh, when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard that Nehemiah was coming to Jerusalem, it displeased them greatly. 
that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And today we see those two blokes, plus a couple of other people, uh, come and launch a campaign of intimidation, trying to demoralise Nehemiah and the people and to stop this work on the wall. God's people face opposition. The good work that God has ordained, that God has inspired, that God is driving is under attack. And it's worth giving a bit of background to see a little bit more about these opponents that they have. First of all, it's really clear how uh, they show us how vulnerable God's people are. Uh, Sambalat is a Horonite from Samaria to the north of Jerusalem. Tobiah is an Ammonite, so he's from the east of Israel. Geshem is an Arab who comes from the southeast of the country. And the men of Ashdod uh, are from Judah's western border. That means that God's people are completely surrounded, basically. And that's really why they need this wall. It's interesting, too, to consider and speculate on the motivations for their opposition. Take Sambalat. He, uh, an ancient document from the 5th century BC suggests that he was the governor of Samaria, and so it's, it's probable that he had some kind of power over Jerusalem before Nehemiah comes. And so Nehemiah comes as the new governor, and it threatens Sambalat's power. Uh, Tobiah, meanwhile, is called the Ammonite, which perhaps is because he's from that race or that tribe, uh, but he's also got a Jewish name, which is intriguing. So he's either Jewish or he's connected to the Jews. We're told later on that his daughter married the Jewish high priest and his son had married into the Israelite aristocracy. And so what we have here is someone who is a threat to them religiously. Now, he wants a safer, tamer Judaism. It's kind of encouraging compromise. He carries a Jewish name, but he threatens the identity, the religious integrity of God's people. Geshem, meanwhile, had, and his son had conquered a bunch of tribes in the area, and so it's probable that he has political designs and, and material designs as well. He wants to expand his, uh, his reach commercially. So they are this potent mix. Each of them have their own motivations, and yet something actually brings them all together. In chapter 2, we're told, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. That ultimately is the thing that's driving them. They oppose God's people simply because they are God's people. It's, it's really spiteful. Uh, they don't like it when they see that someone has come to help out God's people. And there's something pretty depressing about this. You see, this has always been the case. Sadly, throughout the Old Testament, we see God's people opposed, enslaved in Egypt, resisted in Canaan, overrun and exiled by the Babylonians, harassed now by these various nations. We see it in the New Testament as well. God's people are opposed for their stand, for their faith, and we've seen it ever since. Unfair treatment, harassment and persecution. Basically, anywhere the gospel has gone and God's people have, have found faith, they have been opposed. God's people always face opposition. As T.J. Betts puts it, the powers of darkness will not sit idly while the people of God rise up to build, whether they're building a wall, as in Nehemiah's day, or they're building Christ's kingdom, as we are called to do today. Ultimately, it's because the world is opposed to God. Jesus explained this to his disciples. He said that it's because you're not of the world that people oppose you. If you were of the world, Jesus says, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the reality is there's this kind of opposition to God that's right through the world in the human heart. We try to resist him and rebel against him. We resist his authority. 
It's almost like there's this grand conspiracy seeking to overthrow God. And so when a Christian, when someone comes to trust in God, to submit to God's authority, it's almost like they become a traitor to everyone else. They're letting the side down somehow. So God's people face opposition because they are God's people, because they're seeking to follow him. So it's a bit depressing, and yet it's also clarifying. See, it means that the opposition that God's people face is something different. To, there's, it's not logical. There's something deeper than that. There's something primeval here, something, in fact, that's spiritual. Of course, that's what Scripture tells us. Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ultimately, it comes from Satan himself. In fact, the word, the name Satan actually means adversary, and he has been the opponent of God's people throughout the ages. Revelation 12 says he makes war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And understanding that helps us to be aware of the conflict that we're in, why the opposition is coming, and also how to respond to it. You see, if it's spiritual and if this opposition has been going on through the ages, through the millennium, then it also helps us learn how to respond to it. And we're going to see that today in the story of Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to see some of the tactics that those who oppose God bring, how Nehemiah responds to it, how that points to how we can respond to opposition as well. Well, the first tactic that we see is the strategy of scorn. Verse 1, when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly uh, enraged and he jeered at the Jews. First he questions their strength. What are these feeble Jews doing? Then he questions their abilities. Will they restore it for themselves? He questions their ambitions. Will, will they sacrifice? Will they actually rebuild this temple? He questions their strategy. Will you finish up in a day? I mean, as if you're going to be able to keep your breakneck schedule. Finally, he questions their resources. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And then his buddy Tobiah piles on the scorn, verse 3. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Like, it's not, even if they do manage to make this, it won't be firm, it won't be strong, it won't keep anyone out. Uh, this would have been profoundly unsettling. Really, it's a, it's a war of propaganda. You might have seen some of those leaflets or things that they did during World War II where uh, they would drop a, a leaflet behind the enemy lines, kind of encouraging the enemy to, to, to feel discouraged, trying to demoralise them. That's what they're trying to do here. They're trying to discourage, demoralise, distract God's people. I mean, there's a lot of questions that Sam Balat is asking and you can imagine if God's people started to ask the same questions. Maybe he is right. Maybe we are foolish to think that we can do this. Maybe we are biting off more than we can chew. Maybe uh, Nehemiah is, is dreaming. Maybe we're naive to think that God is in this, naive to think God is there at all. And I feel like we're facing similar questions today. You see, we're scorned today for our faith in God. Do you really think that God made the world? Do you really think that there is a God out there at all? It's just some sky fairy. We're seen as naive and weak for even having a faith. Christopher Hitchens once said, faith is a surrender of the mind. It's the surrender of reason. 
Of course, some people think we're not just weak, but dangerous. That Christianity is evil and a threat to others. And so we are attacked as part of that. How can you imagine that God is good when there's so much suffering in the world? And then if we take the Bible's commands literally and try to live by them, still relevant, we're scorned for that. The idea that sex is reserved for marriage or that marriage is reserved for a man and a woman or even the very idea that there is only men and women, all of that can mean that we are scorned for our beliefs. They're seen as retrograde, medieval, restrictive and a threat to others. Of course, we were told when we were kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It's a cute line, but of course it's not true. Of course, the reality is that names do hurt us. Being scorned, being despised for our faith is one of the hardest things that we can face. It's incredibly demoralising. I mean, we hate to be seen as stupid. So much of our lives, we're seeking to present ourselves as intelligent. So much of our evangelism and our apologetics is all about trying to help people see that Christianity is logical, that it's beautiful, that it's compelling. And so when people scorn us, that can be deeply confronting. It's easy for us to feel exposed and even ashamed, ashamed of our beliefs, ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of God himself. But I loved seeing Nehemiah's response to when he was scorned here. First of all, verse 4, you'll see, His first response is to pray. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. I love that prayer is Nehemiah's instinctive response. I mean, it's no surprise at one level, he's a man of prayer. Uh, We see throughout Nehemiah, there's about eight different prayers that he prays. He's constantly praying. As Charles Swindle puts it, he was a leader from the knees up. That That was how he led. And there's this beautiful intimacy in his prayer too. Hear, O oh our God. There's something very innocent and pleading and trusting about this. It's like a, a child speaking to their father. Oh, God, this is really hard. This is hurting me. Please do something about this. I feel despised. He's, he's reaching out to God. This tells us about his faith and about his God. He, he knew, as he prays in, I think, chapter 1, that God is attentive to the cries of his people. That, so he has this kind of childlike trust and faith in God. It's a beautiful thing. And yet, as you read on, you might find his prayer a little bit strange and even uncomfortable. Verse 4, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. This is a pretty full-on prayer. Turn back their taunt. Give them up to be plundered. Do not cover their guilt. This is quite confronting for us, and we might be thinking, is that really how God's people should be praying? I mean, how does this square with Jesus, who says, turn the other cheek, who says, love your enemies? Isn't this a bit harsh? Well, it's worth working through this, because I think there's some important lessons for us here. First of all, it's essential to understand that this prayer is inspired by Nehemiah's loyalty to God. So do you notice what he says? 
for, you, for they have provoked you to anger. That's what he's thinking about. He's, he's angry and he's hurt, but it's not just for himself. It's also for God. He's hurt that God has been dishonoured, that God is being opposed. As Raymond Brown puts it, they have not merely reviled God's servants, they have abused God's name. Or someone else says it's impossible for Nehemiah to be committed to God's call on his life and at the same time not be in opposition to those who oppose God, the people of God and the mission of God. That's, that's why Nehemiah responds. He's on about God's work. These people are trying to stop God's work and so he has to bring this to him. In fact, it's right for us to respond with a kind of anger, a disappointment, a sadness, a grief, when God's ways are opposed. So as Lewis says, it's actually there's something a bit wrong if we're not indignant when God is opposed because things, there are things that are manifestly wrong, he says, and even hateful to God, and so we should feel that. And that's what Nehemiah feels. You see this with Jesus, of course, don't you? When he comes to the temple, he's shocked, he's horrified when he sees People uh, just selling everything there. Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Jesus can, can embody those words and so can Nehemiah. As Peter Adam summarises, Nehemiah is not praying that his enemies will be eternally condemned, just that God would frustrate and judge those who oppose the good works of his people. So Nehemiah prays, that's his instinct. He prays for God's honour and then we see something really wonderful. He just gets on with it. Verse 6, so we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to the half thereof for the, the people had a mind to work. And there's something important here, isn't there, that, that scorn actually only works if we let it. <laughs> I know that sounds very simplistic, a bit self-help guru, but in a sense, it really is true. Scorn is designed to demoralise and distract us, to discourage us, to, to put us off the task that God has given us. And we can actually choose to just keep doing the task. We can refuse to be defeated by it. That's what we see here in Nehemiah. The people keep on building the wall because they had a mind to work. As we reflect on this, I think it's worth us kind of asking ourselves a couple of questions. When we are scorned, why do we get offended? What's the motivation driving us? Is it just the damage to our own reputation, our own sense of comfort, or is it, is it our sense of sadness that God is being dishonoured? Now we feel embarrassed when someone scorns us. Is it just for ourselves? Or are we saddened that people are rejecting the authority of God? Are we loyal to God or just to ourselves? And then when we are scorned, what do we do next? Do we just give up? Do we allow ourselves to be distracted and demoralised? Or do we continue? Do we continue to do the work that God has called us to? I love the example of the Apostle Paul here, uh, speaking and telling the gospel in the, the world of the first century was very difficult. The idea of humbling yourselves before God and relying on someone else to lift you up didn't make sense in that culture. 
doesn't make sense in our culture. And yet Paul remained firm. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So he was scorned for his beliefs, but he knew God and he knew that in the foolishness of the gospel, God's wisdom was displayed, and in the weakness of the cross, God would reveal his power. Well, Nehemiah and the people are unmoved by the verbal assaults, by the scorn, and so, unsurprisingly, their enemies step it up, and now we see not just scorn, but anger, not just verbal threats, but physical danger. Verse 7, when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Nehemiah's response is to pray and to act. In verse 9, his instinct is to pray. We pray to our God and then there's the practical step that flows from that and set a guard of, as a protection against them day and night. It's worth noticing those two things together, the prayer and the practical action. Sometimes, you see, we, we do one and not the other. Peter Adam again says, we often think that if we pray, we need not act and that acting when you've prayed is faithless. Or we act and forget to pray. We either take too little responsibility or too much responsibility. But we see constantly with Nehemiah, he always does both. Back in chapter 2, he felt afraid before the king of Artaxerxes, so he prayed and then he spoke. He, he, did, he acted. Here again, he has every reason to feel afraid, to doubt, and so he prays and he acts, he plans, he does something. As Derek Kidner explains, this, his response exactly reflects his faith and it, it shows the partnership of heaven and earth, of trust and good management. Whenever Nehemiah prays, practical action follows because the prayer leads to that. And what's important is when he prays, Nehemiah knows what to do because he's prayed. And it's just as well that he's prayed now because things are about to get tougher still. In verse 10 we read, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. This is, I think the most difficult moment, the moment where everything could have fallen apart. First of all, the people are exhausted. Their strength is failing. They've been working crazy hours building this wall. It's getting higher and higher, so the work gets harder and harder. They have to carry stuff further, higher. They've had to set up protection around the wall day and night so they're not getting the rest that they need. And they're starting to wonder if this is possible. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. They're starting to really question their ability and their strength. And then added to that, they're worrying for their families. They've been travelling, as we saw last week, they had to travel a long way to come to Jerusalem. They're staying in Jerusalem. They've left their families, their loved ones, their work, 
their farms, their livelihoods. They've left all of that behind them. We know that all of these other enemies are all around them. They're approaching, they're encroaching, they're, they're threatening. And then their families are worried, they're vulnerable, they're scared. Ten times we're told they plead, you must return to us. And just imagine the pressure on those at the wall. They must want to return. How do they keep going? They're all afraid. This is the key moment. When opposition turns to anger, to violence even, how do we respond? It's easy to feel intimidated, to feel afraid. I mean, just imagine what it's like for Christians in closed countries, places where it's illegal to be one of God's people, to meet with God's people. I often imagine it. What would I do? Honestly, I really worry about what I would do. See, anytime anger is directed against me, when I'm afraid, my temptation, my instinct is to run away, to back down, to protect myself. Like that's that's the instinct within me. How do you respond when anger is turned against you? Might be something stupid, like a bit of road rage. Or it could be something more profound, an argument with someone. Or maybe you've said something on Facebook and everyone piles on. How, how do you respond when anger is turned against you? Particularly for your beliefs, for your faith. Psychologists often talk about the fight or flight response. When there is an external threat, some people, their instinct is to fight, to, to fight fire with fire, to get just as angry as the other person. Others have an instinct to, to run away, to get away from it, to protect themselves. Maybe you have a particular instinct. There's a healthy alternative, however. Psychologists call it the tend and befriend response. In a moment of stress, they say, you should look to those that you love to find strength in others and then provide that strength to others. And that's actually what we see here with Nehemiah. First of all, he sets up their defences. He sets up a guard day and night, half work and half protect. He defends the most vulnerable places, the places where there's holes in the wall. The wall is at its lowest point. They make sure they've got the best defences there. He sets up a communication system so they're ready to help at a moment's notice. Verse 19, as, as soon as the trumpet blows, they know to, to go to that place. And everyone's ready to fight at a moment's notice. Verse 18, each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. This is round the clock. People are on the job constantly, whether they're working or defending. Verse 21, we laboured at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. In fact, even when they clock off, they remain on call. Verse 22, I said to the people, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that there may be a guard for us by night and may labour by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. It's all in. It's all the time. But the most important thing, I think, is his speech. Morale is so critical in battle. Napoleon said it was three times more important than the physical forces. And, of course, there's countless examples of this through history of smaller 
armies defeating larger ones or showing great courage. We see this in the movies, of course, too. Think of the great speeches in Braveheart or Lord of the Rings. I was going to repeat one of them, but I would have ruined it for you. We're seeing it in real life now as we see uh, the courage that we see in the Ukraine. I mean, President Zelensky is, a, is a, an expert at building the morale of his nation and of his people. And here we see it with Nehemiah, verse 14. I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Do not be afraid. This is the constant message of Scripture. Deuteronomy 7, you shall not be in dread of them for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? There's innumerable references, calls for us not to be afraid. And why are there so many? Well, it's because it's so hard for us to trust that, to believe that. So God is constantly reminding us that we don't need to be afraid. When we're scorned or when people turn in anger against us, we shouldn't be afraid. We don't have to be afraid because God is with us. Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And underpinning all of that, of course, is the character of God. And so you see here that Nehemiah says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember his character. Nehemiah understands this. Our God is committed to us. Verse 20, our God will fight for us. Again, this is a very common line in Scripture. It said to the Israelites as they crossed the Red Sea, when they went up to the Promised Land, during their battles in the Promised Land, constantly God says, I will fight for you and with you. Deuteronomy 4, the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Ultimately, Nehemiah remembers that God is totally committed to his people, that God has made a covenant with them. See, this whole project of rebuilding the walls was God's work. At every point, Nehemiah says, the good hand of God was on me. God blessed us. God enabled this to happen. God inspired me with this, all of those things. God has been in every step. And so he trusts that now God will come through and defend them and protect them because God had promised to do this. Isaiah 41, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous, my righteous right hand. So Nehemiah, saying all this to the people, is saying, find your strength in God. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's difficult. But God is here with us. And then beautifully he says, give your strength. Verse 14, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. It's almost like I think he's calling them to be a part of the covenant. God has made a covenant with us. He set us up to be his people, 
He will stay firm. He will, his love is steadfast. He will keep his promises. Now keep yours. We've been brought together as a people. Stick firm. Stand fast. It will be difficult. It will be hard. Some of you may even lose your lives, he's saying to them. But stand fast. God will give his strength to them, but they must also be willing to give their strength to each other, to the cause, to the people of God and to their families. Now, I think the same thing is being asked of us today as well. As God's people, we need to grapple with the reality of opposition. We talked about this a bunch during our 1 Peter series. But the reality is if we are faithful, we will face opposition. 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It may be verbal. It may be scorn. It may be physical. It may be anger that gets hot. Either way, it will be hard, it will be hurtful, and it will come simply because we are God's people. People will be displeased because we seek God's will. And in the midst of this, it's tempting for us to respond and either fight or flight, to fight, to fight fire with fire. When we're scorned, it's so easy to scorn back, to ridicule someone, for their crazy arguments, to dismiss them. Or when there's anger that comes against us, it's easy to get just as angry to fight back. But here I think we see in this passage a different response, and that's finding strength in God and then giving our strength to each other. And it's a strength that we can only find in God. Opposition is a spiritual reality, and so God gives us, promises us, spiritual resources. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then, of course, he goes on and calls us to put on the whole armour of God to fight those who oppose us and oppose him. And in all of this, we are invited to look to Jesus for both strength and inspiration. You see, like his people here in Nehemiah 4, Jesus was scorned. He was despised and rejected by men, Isaiah 53. When he began his ministry, his own family and neighbours derided him. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? What good thing could come out of Nazareth? They took offence at him, we're told. As he spoke and he told his parables, they scorned his message. Really? Underneath this, there was an insecurity there for them. But Jesus did not stop. He kept on preaching and teaching. And so the scorn, the verbal scorn and derision turned to anger, to physical threats. They resolve to kill him. They almost throw him off a cliff. They hound him until they have him in their grasp. And on the cross, you see their hatred The chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. We're told that even those who were crucified with him also reviled him. 
Like everyone was having a go. Jesus was scorned. Jesus felt the anger and the hatred of humanity. And yet Jesus remained firm and claimed his victory. Of course, it didn't look like that in the moment. It hardly seemed impressive when he died. But this was precisely what he had come to do. His work, his God-given, God-ordained, God-inspired project was to deal with sin. And in his death, he did it. In his death, he took on our sin and paid the price for it so that we could be freed from it. Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Hebrews 12 says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He despised the shame that was poured upon him because he knew that this was the work that God had given him. 1 Corinthians 15 says that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That this Jesus, who looked so defeated, was actually triumphant, and he will return to bring all things under his feet, to defeat all opposition. And it's worth us asking, where do we stand with him when he returns? Where do we stand with him right now? Are we with him or are we against him? And I say that now because I think this is a really good time for us to ask that question. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day would have picked up the story of Nehemiah 4 and they would have loved it. They would have heard the story of Sambalat and Tobiah and rejoiced and kind of jeered at those guys. They're the baddies. And then they would have rejoiced as Nehemiah stood firm and the war was done. You know, God is fighting for us. And yet it's those very same people who ended up opposing Jesus, who ended up opposing God and God's project when Jesus came in the flesh. So it's worth us asking, even here, are we with God or are we secretly opposed to him? See, those people thought they were with God because they liked the project that they could see, but they didn't like the way God through Jesus, confronted them. They hated Jesus because he confronted their sin. He exposed their sin and revealed the hardness of the hearts, the, the rebellion that was inside them. Jesus keeps doing that. He keeps confronting us, exposing us. Even here, we might look like we're with him and yet secretly be resisting him and opposing him. But in this passage, we see that it doesn't work to oppose God. We can't stand. But if we bend our knees to him now, then we are with him. He will be our Lord and our Saviour. He will be in our midst. He will fight with us. He will strengthen us for any opposition. He will be with us. He offers us forgiveness and a new life with him, he offers us his strength. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. Lord, it feels like this year we've thought a lot about 
the reality of opposition, the cost of faith, help us to not be uh, blasé about that, but also, Lord, help us not to be discouraged by that. Help us to be realistic. Help us to find our strength in you, ultimately in Jesus, the one who came, the one who stood firm amidst scorn and anger, the one who with such great courage went to the cross to complete the project that you had given him, the project of saving us. Lord, we confess to you that in our hearts we've been opponents to you, We've resisted you and opposed you, rebelled against you. Thank you that even though that's true, you offer us forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to submit to you today and every day, to receive your forgiveness and love, to receive your strength. You are a, we're a man of sorrows so that we could be a people of joy. Thank you for what you've done for us, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.